Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, Zach Twomley here for When Diplomacy Fails Podcast. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project and I'm very... Very happy to have you on board. If you weren't aware, we've been doing this since mid-November. So if this is your first time listening, you're very unlikely to know what's going on. But if you have an interest in all things 1919, if you want to know more about reparations, then maybe this is your jam. Maybe you don't need those other 57 episodes to bring you up to speed. And maybe you just want to see what When Diplomacy Fails and Zach Twomley is all about. If so, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. And I really hope I don't scare you all away. Normally, well, as normal as I can be, we wouldn't be having this many episodes every single week. But because people operating a century ago weren't really thinking about little old me, and because I've taken it upon myself to detail what happened at the Paris Peace Conference a century ago, yeah, it's been a very busy last few months. But I'm able to spend all of this time and pay all this attention to detail to all this stuff because this podcast is my job. I am literally living the dream. How am I able to do that? Well, it's no secret. I have some wonderful history friends, 300 of them in fact, supporting this podcast on Patreon. 
And if you'd like to do the same thing, then you can get some extras in return. Knew the deal by now, guys. I never cease to go on about it because it's such a wonderful deal, in my view anyway. You pay a small amount of money every month, and in return, you get more of what you love, hopefully, which is this podcast, or you get what you already get, minus all the ads and stuff, plus being able to access the scripts, which is nice if you like to read along with things and see where I got all my information from, just in case you thought I was making it up. Of course, not everyone wants to go on to Patreon, and I understand that, but if you would like to do a very tiny thing to help this podcast grow, all you have to do is tell somebody about it. It takes literally a second, and a personal recommendation goes way, way further than seeing a random ad on Facebook or Twitter or what have you, and then that person clicking and maybe or maybe not actually listening. If you tell one of your friends to listen, tell one of your relatives to listen, tell your students to listen, tell your dog how much you're enjoying these things, I'm not fussy. Just tell somebody about it, and next thing you know, you'll be adding another history friend into the mix. And it all makes a difference. Trust me, guys. Those podcasts who got really, really big over time, how do you think they did that? It was through their listenership. This is an independent podcast. We're not on one of those huge, big networks. I mean, we're on the Agora Podcast Network, where you can find wonderful independent podcasters just like myself, but I'm not being paid a massive wage. I'm being paid by my listeners to do this wonderful stuff, and I've been doing it for seven years, and I freaking love it, but if I was waiting for a salary or a check to come in the mail, then I'd be waiting all those years for it to arrive. I do it for the love and the passion, and I'm able to invest those things and not die of starvation because of your financial support. But we got to that stage in the first place because you guys are passionate about this like I am. So you spread the word and tell people, and by word of mouth it has grown. I know I have listeners over all over the world, and I'd love to meet you all someday if that was even possible. But for now I'll just say thanks so much for listening. Make sure you tell somebody about this, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Versailleniversary Project, episode 58. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailleniversary Project, episode 58. I know, I know, I'm sorry, another episode. I really can't help it this time. They are coming out hot and fast, just like I said, because a century ago, they were making an awful lot of mess. And we have to get through all this mess if we're going to understand how the end product was reached and why it actually looked the way it did. Last time we examined two apparently unrelated issues. It was a very interesting exercise, but I think it went quite well. We looked at Danzig and the Rhine, only to discover that they were very relevant indeed to the situation which was then underway in Italy. Each question also presented serious consequences in the interwar years. Although one could argue that our narrative compass is now pointing to the last few days of April 1919, where the League of Nations is about to be finalised and the Germans are about to arrive, I think it's important 
to pause for a moment in this episode and take a few steps back. You see, before we advance the plot of the Paris Peace Conference any further, I want to turn our attention to the significant other developments in the field of reparations negotiations, which were underway throughout the month of April 1919. When we last left this aspect of the story in late March, it seemed that Lloyd George was in the lead of surprisingly demanding statesmen in search of large bills from Germany, which the vanquished would be forced to pay. By the end of the following month, though, these bills would be more carefully defined and categorised, and what was more, they would also receive legal support with a piece of writing that, at the time, wasn't given too much attention, certainly not the amount of attention it would later be given by fans and critics of that article alike. This article, Article 231, otherwise known as the War Guilt Clause, which in itself is an incorrect term, as I will explain, acquired a life of its own in the years to come. In this episode, if you're feeling brave enough, we're going to tackle reparations, hopefully make some satisfying conclusions regarding its role in the Treaty of Versailles and subsequent controversies, and examine the issue of the War Guilt Clause in the same light. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to late April 1919. One hundred and thirty-two billion gold marks. That was the final number. That was the sum arrived at in the deliberations of the Reparations Commission on the 27th of April 1921, a little less than two years after the major peacemakers had packed up and gone home, and if this episode comes out on the correct day, 98 years to the day that this episode has come out. 132 billion gold marks works out at roughly 30 billion US dollars in 1919, and on its own, it represents a formidable bill indeed. However, as the late Sally Marks put it, the truth was far more complex, but also much more interesting. Both the world in general, and the historians in particular, Marx wrote in 1969, have tended to be mesmerised by the 132 billion marks. The assumption has been that this sum, by definition outrageous, was brutally imposed at gunpoint upon a prostrate Germany by greedy and vengeful victors. Sally Marx passed away in early 2019, but throughout her academic career she contributed a great deal to our understanding of reparations, what they meant in 1921 when the figure was arrived at, and how we can interpret them now. Sally Marks will certainly be making several appearances in this episode as we go along, and if you ever get a chance, I would recommend tracking down her works, since they combine the perfect amount of information with accessibility, even for an economics noob like myself. The 1960s were themselves a period of renewed interest and investigation into the First World War, as German historian Fritz Fischer essentially established the default position through which the outbreak of the Great War would be viewed with his book World Power or Decline and several follow-ups. Fritz's central thesis spoke of a Germany which had been planning the Great War up until it launched it against the Allies in summer 1914. Favourable impressions of German behaviour during the period were few and far between, as were negative perspectives on Allied or British behaviour during the same period. It was, Fischer claimed, Germany's fault that the Great War happened, and that was that. After the war ended, armed with the articles of the Treaty of Versailles, German statesmen loudly and angrily proclaimed that the so-called War Guilt Clause 
was proof of how unfairly they had been treated. Fisher noted that it was proof of justice prevailing and the culprits being rightfully blamed for what they had done. Neither side of that debate, though, were actually correct because another stunning myth surrounding the reparations controversy, in addition to that which claims that the Germans were expected to pay 132 billion gold marks, was the notion that the Wargeld Clause even blamed Germany solely for the Great War. So these two myths obviously need to be unpacked if we're going to understand exactly what did happen and what was meant by the Reparation Commission's decisions. So let's begin with the figure reached in April 1921 of 132 billion gold marks before we examine that war guilt clause. First and foremost, we should note the date. The Treaty of Versailles, signed on the 28th of June 1919, plainly did not include the actual information on the sum of money which Germany was supposed to pay, since that decision, as we established, was not made until late spring 1921, two years later. What, then, did the Allies do when it came time to making the Germans sign? In another bit of controversy, the idea of the blank check was devised, whereby Germany would be expected to pay a sum of money, but this sum would be set in the years that followed by the commission established for that purpose. The question of why the Allies decided to go with this blank check idea, rather than a precise sum of money, has been addressed before in previous episodes looking at reparations, but to cut a long story short, they delayed their decision because it suited all involved to do so. In the Allied case, there was above all not enough time to properly measure the different range of bills and weights which the Allies would need to calculate before they could present the Germans with a final bill. That process, it was expected, would take years, as indeed it did, and this could not be allowed to delay the final peace treaty. For those states seeking to reduce the bill which Germany would have to pay, figures like Lloyd George eventually came around to the idea that if they destroyed Germany, the European economy would never recover and Britain would be faced with a depression. Coming to this conclusion, you might recall, must have been a bit of a problem for Lloyd George in particular because he had floated his election campaign on making the Germans pay, among other ideas like hanging the Kaiser, well, if not hanging him, then at least punishing him. Lloyd George hoped that, by giving the process some time, Kammerheads would prevail, and in this, his politician senses were correct. By 1921, producing an actual figure was much easier politically, because much of the venom behind the anger towards Germany had abated. To the Germans, while they could make much noise about the indignity of being made sign a blank check to their people, few German leaders were against it in practice, because they also anticipated a calming of the situation in a few years' time. Even a brief examination of the figures being bandied about in 1919 versus 1921 demonstrates that these interpretations were correct. Figures between 800 and 500 billion marks were discussed at the Paris Peace Conference. At a conference in Bologna in June 1920, the figure went under 269 billion marks. But by January 1921, this figure had only dropped to 248 billion, and three months later, our figure of 132 billion was proposed. So the Allies reached their number at long last. It was, by any surface impression, still a large bill to have to pay. However, a forgotten and greatly misunderstood fact about the final bill was that 132 billion marks, well, that wasn't the actual sum of money that the Allies expected Germany to pay. 
What do I mean by that? Well, to explain what I mean by that, we need to grasp the recurring fact, which is that public opinion remained a critical element of the reparations process. The Allied governments felt pressured into attaining as much money as they could from Germany, because through that process, their electorates would be satisfied. These political ends were combined with genuine strategic and economic policies that sought to protect and rebuild the shattered economies of the Allies. Especially where the German war machine had rampaged over their industrial or productive land. However, as I said, 132 billion marks was not what the Allies received from Germany in the end, and at no point did any Allied figure expect to receive 132 billion marks either. The reason for this was that 132 billion marks was in practice divided, and not only was it a number divided between all of the central powers, as in not just Germany would have to pay 132 billion marks, but all of the defeated central powers would, but this number of 132 billion marks was also separated within different categories. When it was clear that Germany would not be presented with a precise bill for several years, the Allies requested that Germany pay 20 billion gold marks from 1919 in the interim period. This sum was actually required, genuinely required, for services rendered by the Allies, such as occupation forces and for provisions which the Allies had supplied. This 20 billion sum, in addition, did not count as reparations. Germany had paid only 8 out of the 20 billion by 1921, and what was more, this sum of 8 billion, while it had originally not been meant to represent reparations payments, it was actually taken off the final bill in the end anyway. As a kind of spoiler, we should denote that 20 billion marks, the interim payment due to the Allies for the costs they had incurred, was roughly equal to what Germany actually ended up paying in the end. Of the 132 billion gold marks due for reparations, in other words, Germany would pay in the end about 15% of that sum. Since the proposed costs of 20 billion gold marks was not included in the final reparations sum, at least not initially, how did the Allies distinguish what they expected to receive from Germany and what they knew Germany would never pay? Well, they did this with some handy labelling exercises. They labelled the categories of money within the 132 billion marks bill just so that it would be perfectly clear. The labelling system was marked A, B and C, which makes it very easy for us to investigate what the Allies were up to, and we can discern some incredible facts just from briefly glancing at the terms. The more we look at these terms, the less unreasonable 132 billion marks tends to appear. In category A, you had 12 billion gold marks, a sum which was reached by subtracting what the Germans had already paid in their interim bill of 20 billion. Remember, we said that this interim bill was not meant to be included originally in the total reparations bill, but it eventually was anyway. In category B, the figure of 38 billion gold marks was proposed. This was the guts of the reparations bill, and when combined with the figure of 12 billion marks from category A, it constitutes a much less terrifying sum of 50 billion marks, the equivalent of $12.5 billion in 1921. A few things immediately stand out from these figures. First of all, $12 billion was actually less than the amount Germany had originally offered to pay as its bill for violating Belgian and French soil and destroying the industrial and agricultural capacity of those two countries. 
$12.5 billion was not, in other words, extensively unrealistic or extravagant. Secondly, though, and the most burning question, is what about Category C? What about the rest of the money? If the Germans were landed with a final reparations bill of 132 billion marks, and only 50 billion of that was actually expected to be returned in cash or in kind, then did that mean that the remaining 82 billion marks were meaningless? It is an incredible but also indisputable fact of the Treaty of Versailles and of the Reparations Commission that the answer to that loaded question is a resounding yes. As Sally Marx writes, The German debt was to be a series of bonds, labelled A, B and C. Of these, the C bonds, which contained the bulk of the German obligation, were deliberately designed to be chimerical. They were entirely unreal, and their primary function was to mislead public opinion in the receiver countries into believing that the 132 billion mark figure was being maintained. Allied experts knew that Germany could not pay 132 billion marks, and that the other central powers could pay little. Thus, the A and B bonds, which were genuine, represented the actual Allied assessment of the German capacity to pay. Sally Marx drew these stunning figures from the London Schedule of Payments, a document released on the 5th of May 1921, or a few days after the final reparations figure had been arrived at. Marx analysed the core decisions of that document and unpacked the fact that the Allies essentially declared within it that they had little to no expectation of receiving the remaining 82 billion gold marks. Marx's revelations were too much for some though. When a colleague responded with another article in the Central European History Journal criticising her findings and the figures she had used, Sally Marx retorted a few years later that My main point was that this document established the German reparations debt at a nominal value of 50 billion gold marks, not the figure of 132 billion gold marks widely cited in the general literature concerning the period. And this set out the matter clearly enough. The document, which the London Schedule of Payments produced, asserts the belief that 50 billion gold marks was all they realistically were expecting, and within that figure, it was intimated that even the Allies were not expecting the full sum. The Germans would twice offer to pay the sum of 50 billion gold marks at its present value in 1921, yet the Allies never anticipated that the actual amount of 50 billion would be delivered. Instead, they seem to have expected a decade or so of regular payments of 2.5 billion in cash or of payment in kind. The French, most notably, simply hoped for a situation which would not leave them at a disadvantage. However, these confessions were then classified, and they weren't released for public consumption for 40 years. Marx, as it happens, was among the first historians to properly analyse this document and its central key importance to the reparations debate. And her complaint at the beginning of her 1978 article that historians have no excuse for not following her lead in tracking these materials down to get to the heart of the reparations debate still rings true more than 50 years later when the conventional viewpoint on reparations remains dominant and the precise terms of German reparations remain shredded in myth and generalisation. So we can state for the record, without too much controversy, that 82 billion gold marks were used as essentially political capital in the Allied countries to demonstrate to their populations that actually they did enjoy success in wresting from Germany the expenses which they had promised. 
That is a stark fact which emerges out of Marx's research, but considering what we've learned about war leaders and their promises to their electorates, it should not be too surprising to us. It is perhaps more surprising that the Allies agreed to essentially put pen to paper and admit this in 1921, rather than the fact that they actually behaved in this manner. Remember what House detailed in his diary when in conversation with David Lloyd George, arguably the most grasping of all the Allied leaders when it came to reparations, as we learned in episode 51 from late March. In mid-March, though, House inserted several revealing pieces about the connection between British public opinion and Lloyd George's quest to acquire bountiful reparations. On the 16th of March 1919, House wrote how Bonner Law made an open proposal today that we should agree to ask $50 billion indemnity from Germany, but to take it in marks, and to even let the Germans know privately that we did not expect her to pay the full amount, and after five years or some such period, she would not be expected to pay anything further. The purpose, of course, is to fool the British public. Only a couple of days later in March, House was writing how Lloyd George was worried about the question of reparation, both as to amount and as to how he was to satisfy the British public. Even if we take House's ingrained proclivities for making himself sound as good as possible into account, then it becomes clear from this source that the British Prime Minister was wary indeed of returning to London with a smaller bill than the public expected. And Lloyd George was far from the only astute observer of this fact. Gaston First, a little-known Belgian official who presided over the Belgian representatives on the Reparations Commission, noted openly in his memoirs in 1925 that the authors of the 1921 schedule of payments knew themselves that the sea bonds were only a fiction and that if they had not wished or dared to touch the total of the debt, they had deliberately arranged to reduce in fact to 50 billion, the nominal amount of 132 billion. In this there was an undeniable deception, but an undoubtedly useful and even necessary deception. The men who had been studying the reparations question for several years knew then that one could not reasonably require of Germany more than 3 billion per year, and that, consequently, there was no hope that she could pay off a debt of more than 50 billion gold marks. But the statesmen believed that public opinion in the Allied nations was not sufficiently enlightened not to rebel at the brutal announcement of a total so short of its expectations. In brief, the schedule of payments elegantly resolved the difficulty on which all previous negotiations had foundered. The German debt was reduced in fact to a reasonable amount, but this reduction was sufficiently cleverly disguised to keep public opinion from perceiving it and becoming aroused. The solution naturally presented itself then, that by May 1921 public attention would have moved on to another issue, but to cover their bases nonetheless, the actual figure would be inflated just to be safe. Even at the cost of handing the Germans a valuable propaganda weapon, the Allied governments seemed to believe that it was worth it in order to placate their electorates with an inflated figure that would never realistically be paid. In fact, as we noted, Germany didn't even pay that 50 billion gold marks. The final tally of what she did pay was closer to 20 billion. This brings us to an important exercise of tying up some loose ends. Before we examine the question of war guilt, I think it would be beneficial to examine what happened next in the saga of reparations payments. 
If the Germans were not in fact saddled with an impossibly enormous bill, then what did it say about her statesmen when they presented difficulties in paying, paid only partially or not at all on some years, and required constant Allied intervention to restructure her payment plans? Well, it certainly suggested that German leaders in the interwar years were opportunistic and mindful of the political dynamite which they had in their hands. Since their population, and the Allied populations as well, had not read the terms of the London Schedule of Payments from May 1921, and since they had loudly condemned the blank cheque idea in June 1919 as well, to Germans it must have seemed as though the Allies were out to ruin them financially. And the Allies, in a policy of regrettable short-sightedness, wished to encourage this impression so that they could use it as political capital at home. The year after, the London Schedule of Payments had unveiled a figure of 132 billion gold marks, though, Germany was hit with another infamous problem, hyperinflation, which gave rise to those scenes where Germans trundled wheelbarrows of notes to the shop in a desperate attempt to keep pace with the unprecedented devaluation of their currency. This crisis, inherent in the mark currency, obviously hampered Germany's ability to pay the reparations bill, but depending on whom you ask, The cause and reason behind this hyperinflation varies. In the opinion of David Felix, it was the demands of the Allies for their hefty reparations which actually helped facilitate this hyperinflation. Sally Marx comes to our rescue in this regard though, making the important point that, first, inflation had been an ongoing problem in Germany since the end of the war, and second, the Germans were paying very little in the way of reparations between early 1921 and late 1922 when inflation was at its worst. If the reparations weren't to blame for the infamous butchering of the post-war German economy, then what was? Well, the boring but more accurate answer is that it was a combination of factors. Incredibly low taxes on German citizens, the unregulated and incredibly irresponsible mass printing of money, and the flight of capital from Germany to other countries, all of which ate away at confidence. Regardless of whose fault it was, When the bottom fell out of the German economy, she was obviously not going to be able to keep up with the schedule set by the London Schedule of Payments in May 1921. So in December 1922, the Reparations Commission voted 3-1, to with Britain dissenting, to declare that Germany had defaulted on its delivery of timber. This failure was especially notable because the payment in kind of timber resource had essentially been set by the Germans. That the Germans were now unable or unwilling to contribute, a sum which they had originally agreed upon themselves, was interpreted in the Allied countries as a sign of her bad faith. But that wasn't the only default on payment in kind. In January 1923, Germany failed for the 34th time in 36 months to deliver its quota of coal for the month. On the 9th of January 1923, by virtue of Germany's continued failures to prioritise the reparations, or to actually meet the vast majority of them, the Reparations Commission voted to declare Germany in default of its coal payments and to occupy the Ruhr as a penalty. The Ruhr was the upper portion of the Rhineland and contained a considerable chunk of Germany's coal and industrial output. Political pressure was strong in France and Belgium. This compelled both governments there to act out, but they were also acting within the legal bounds of the Treaty of Versailles. If the British Prime Minister at that time, Andrew Bonner Law, didn't like this policy, then he didn't stop the French or Belgian soldiers from making use of British-controlled railroads to get to the regions. 
Raymond Poincaré, the wartime French president, was now the French premier and he had felt forced into taking this dramatic step of occupying the Ruhr. It is important that we do not view the Ruhr occupation, as it is sometimes viewed, as a French act of bullying or kicking Germany when she was down. The occupation was costly and immensely unpopular of course in Germany as well as among the British public and a breach began to set in between the Anglo-French allies which contributed in time to a belief that France was far stronger than it actually was. The British were loudly critical of the French occupation policy in the Ruhr even though Andrew Bonner Law was so anxious about repairing the rift between London and Paris that he moved no official policy in response to it. Yet his silence spoke volumes to a depressed, isolated and deeply concerned French Premier who felt he was watching everything that had been gained at Versailles go up in smoke after only five years. As Sally Marks notes, we must consider the context of the Ruhr occupation for France in particular to appreciate its meaning. Marx wrote, Once the step had been taken, Poincaré recognised that France had played her last trump card and must win on this card or go down to permanent defeat. She was inherently weaker than Germany and had already failed to enforce delivery of alleged war criminals. To obtain German compliance with the military clauses of the treaty or to gain any effective German participation in the costly French reconstruction of the devastated provinces. If Germany did not pay reparations and remove some of the burden from France, her innate economic superiority, together with further progressive crumbling of the peace treaty, would soon tip the balance altogether. In applying the ultimate sanction of the Ruhr occupation, Poincaré was above all making a final effort to force Germany to acknowledge her defeat in World War I and to accept the Versailles Treaty. He was well aware that the fundamental issues were not coal and timber, but rather survival of the treaty and of France's victory in the war. The British never realised that they were watching an extension of World War I, and, comprehending neither the basic issues nor France's genuine need for coal and money, they could not understand why Poincaré hung grimly on when Italy and Belgium lost heart. Throughout 1924, the situation only grew worse for France, and one of the conditions of the Dawes Plan, introduced in April of 1924, had as a condition the exit of France from the Ruhr. By then, a newer, less experienced French Premier was in charge, and British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald had a much easier time of it than his predecessors in jollying everyone along towards compromise. Yet, while the Germans were now required to pay 2.5 billion gold marks a year under the new plan, and while the new German government under Gustav Streismann soon stabilised the domestic situation, beneath the surface, hints of the catastrophe to come were not far off. A driving force behind the finalisation of the Dawes plan was the background influence of J.P. Morgan & Company, which saw its interests in raising the huge loans for both German and French banks. The sea of foreign debt which Weimar Germany was destined to float on was already being filled and within five years Streismann would be dead, the Wall Street crash would destroy what prosperity had been built in Germany and that country would be convulsed by bitterness, suspicion and resentful memories towards the French who had forced them to pay ungodly sums of money and invaded their sovereign territory when they could not meet the impossible demands. This narrative, of course, only contained about 5% truth, but this did not matter in the atmosphere of the early 1930s. By the time the crash arrived, Germany had only been privy to the terms of the Dawes plan for a handful of years, and thus was never in a position 
to pay even half of the 50 billion gold marks that had been decided upon. Sally Marks concluded on the situation when she wrote, As German politicians and publicists continued to fulminate in the 1920s about the brutality of the reparations settlement, they pointed, of course, to the 132 billion figure and to the economic consequences of the peace by John Maynard Keynes to demonstrate the outrageousness of their burden. They had, in fact, gained the best of all worlds, assuming the existence of any reparations at all, a high ostensible figure, low actual payments, a superlative propaganda position, and a climate of opinion well prepared by Keynes's hot-headed polemic for acceptance of their plaints as axiomatic. It is probably impossible to exaggerate the influence of the economic consequences of the peace. A whole generation of the intelligentsia, especially in the English-speaking world, came to believe that the reparations burden under the Versailles Treaty was both vicious and unpayable, a belief that the Germans assiduously nurtured. Whatever our views on Germany's interwar governments and their difficulty in paying, though, there can be no denying that a cloud was hanging over the Weimar Republic. This cloud had emerged in the aftermath of the war, and it purported to justify on the Allied side why Germany was required to pay the victors in the conflict. In the German perspective, though, this cloud, the so-called Wargild Clause, represented a great injustice inflicted upon its people, which had helped facilitate so much suffering and humiliation. In more opportunistic, manipulative hands, this clause represented a political gold mine which would be mined again and again until all of Europe stood on the precipice of disaster once more. But what was the War Guild Clause, and does it deserve the overwhelmingly negative interpretation which historians and Nazis alike have provided for it? In the final portion of this episode, we're going to do our best to find out. Article 231 of the Treaty of Versailles issues that clause which was to become infamous, the War Guild Clause. It was said, This blamed Germany for starting the war and placed the moral responsibility for the Great War at that empire's feet. But what did Article 231 actually say? Well, it said the following. The Allied and Associated Governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and Associated Governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. So from a surface reading of this, everything would probably appear to be in order. Germany is labelled responsible for causing the war, therefore she is guilty for the war breaking out. We should make note of some key things though. First, if one reads this article with the idea of reparations in mind, then Article 231's purpose becomes much more clear. It was written to establish Germany's legal responsibility for reparations due to the loss and damage she had subjected the Allies to. That, indeed, was the whole reason for the article's existence. Second, though, it is important to underline the fact that there is no mention of guilt anywhere in this article. The mission was not to apportion moral responsibility, but financial responsibility for reimbursement. The distinction is especially critically important because the Allies, even while many would have indeed blamed Germany for starting the war, they weren't unduly concerned with the debate surrounding that mission. All that they really wanted in 1919 was to make clear to the world why Germany had to pay reparations and she would have to pay them by this logic because she had inflicted all the damages during wartime in a conflict for which she was responsible. 
Hopefully you'll be able to understand the difference between the two things. Let's just say if establishing war guilt had been the objective, then the term war guilt would actually have been used, and there would have been greater mention of Germany's moral wrongdoing. There is none of these elements present in Article 231 though. On the contrary, it understates Germany's naked aggression in invading Belgium and France, or of violating the 1839 Treaty of London which she had signed, that established Belgian neutrality. Notwithstanding the acutely dangerous circumstances which German insecurity had been placed in by the Schlieffen Plan and Russian mobilisation, Germany did, by all legal considerations, begin the Great War by declaring war first. Article 231 doesn't proclaim that Germany did it first, though. It states that Germany is responsible for recompensing the Allies for the damage she inflicted through her invasions. A further nail in the coffin of the war guilt idea is that, in the treaties sent to Bulgaria, Austria and Hungary, a similar clause to Article 231 is included. Yet, you never hear the governments in those countries fulminate in the interwar years about the injustice of that clause. Instead, it was the German government which hijacked it and made it into something which it was not. For those citizens caught up in this spell, the outraged interpretation of Article 231 meant that they never even read it or attempted to understand the context of its meaning. Instead, they saw what they wanted to see, and what they wanted to see was Germany as the victim. This, combined with the enormous reparations bill of 132 billion gold marks, painted a uniquely unfair picture, which the bare facts, as we've seen, do not support. Unfortunately, though, in the interwar years, a story of unfairness and allied bullying was far more effective than any notes on what all of this actually meant. On the 23rd of April 1919, in a weighted Council of Four meeting, the final terms of the Treaty of Versailles regarding reparation and the infamous War Guilt Clause were essentially hammered out. It was far from a meeting geared up for the sole purpose of vengeance. In fact, the 23rd of April was a packed meeting held in the backdrop of Italian exits from the conference. The appendix to the afternoon meeting of the 23rd of April contained virtually the entirety of the final reparations terms, even down to the wording of Article 231 and 232, which dealt with the issue, and the bill of 20 billion gold marks, which would be paid in between the conclusion of the treaty and the convening of the Reparations Commission in 1921. Thus, from that day on the 23rd of April, the Allies made plain their intention to kick the final figure for reparations down the road until at least a few years, but in the event until the 5th of May 1921. Article 232, which established the limits of Germany's capacity to pay, was also established when it was noted here that The Allied and associated governments recognise that the financial resources of Germany are not adequate. After taking into account permanent diminutions of such resources which will result from other treaty clauses, to make complete reparation for all such loss and damage. The Allied and associated governments, however, require, and the German government undertakes, that she will make compensation for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allied or associated powers and to their property by such aggression by land, by sea and from the air. This article, which is often forgotten because Article 231 was such a zinger, but Article 232 actually took the focus off of Allied government's sensibilities 
and passed the responsibility to the Germans for reimbursing the Allied populations, such as the Belgian and French citizens that had been caught in the crossfire, their family members killed, their livelihoods destroyed or their pensions wiped out. It was an immensely contentious issue for sure, but it did not commit Germany to recompense the Allies for all the money they had spent during the war, all the losses they had incurred during it. There was no expectation for such unreal returns from Germany either, and as we've seen, following this meeting of the Council of Four on the 23rd of April 1919, until the Reparations Commission reconvened for its final decision on the 5th of May 1921, there was nowhere for the final bill to be presented to the Germans to go to, but downwards. With the reparations properly cleared up and placed in their context, hopefully you can now realise the extent to which the conventional narrative of the Paris Peace Conference has gotten it all wrong, and continues to get it wrong. Germany was not presented with an impossible bill in the Treaty of Versailles. She was presented, in fact, with no bill at all. When the bill did emerge, it was dramatically smaller than had been expected, and yet the Germans still managed to find ways of avoiding the act of paying up. Furthermore, while the Germans dragged their heels with their payments, they also exaggerated the actual terms of the treaty, especially in regards to war guilt. This was not a condemnation of Germany's moral fibre in 1914, and instead was a device for justifying Germany's payments. The distinction is critical, but it was also incredibly easy to ignore, as historians both German and non-German alike managed to do, creating instead the historically accepted picture of a Germany which had been universally wronged, rather than a Germany which had to pay for her actual mistakes. The terms which were arrived at on the 23rd of April 1919 effectively informed the final reparations terms of the treaty, and they were ready just in time for the subjects of those articles, that being the Germans, were on their way to Paris. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 